Hey there, Sojourners. Uh, we're here tonight for a fireside chat. You've heard these before. We sit down by the crackling fireplace, uh, listen to those sound effects in the background, and we chat with uh, someone in the industry of horror or general creativity. We like to keep it a little bit gothic around here, so we go with at least horror adjacent, and we're definitely going to be able to do that tonight as we sit down with Rachel Brune, the editor of Crone Girls Press. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Patrick. How's it going? Oh, it is going quite well. It is a lovely overcast September day here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, perfect for talking about all things spooky. Yes, it is a beautiful sunny day here in Southern California, but I've closed the window blinds, so it's a little dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you are the editor of Crone Girls Press. What's Crone Girls Press? Crone Girls Press is an indie horror micropress. And because I love to be super niche, we publish horror anthologies. Uh, we started in 2019 with Stories We Tell After Midnight. That soon became Volume 1. And uh, since then, we've published, uh, I believe, five full-length anthologies, five mini-anthologies in our Midnight Bite series. And I am currently working on our next full-length anthology. It's edited, and I'm just it's in the formatting process, and we're getting to release that uh, in a couple of weeks. It is called Tangle and Fen, a dark fiction anthology. And it is the second in the series from our uh, anthology called Coppice and Break. Oh, nice. I'm calling it dark fiction. It is mostly horror, but there are some stories in there that are more on like the borderlands of the horror genre. So they're dark, but they're also some of them have a note of hope. Some of them could be seen as maybe dark fantasy or urban fantasy. They all kind of fit together on that dark umbrella but it's um, maybe a little bit more mushy when it comes to genre boundaries. I'm definitely that way on all of my writing, pretty much. <laughs> uh, well, the Gothic Podcast is a humor and horror actual play audio drama in the first place. <laughs> oh, Sojourners, for full disclosure, I have been published by Crone Girls Press a couple of times, have a couple of stories in a variety of uh, the anthologies including stories we talked in Midnight 3, where I believe I just like threw out, or I, I forget how it came about, but you, we were talking about masks or something, or lighthouses. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. We had that uh, COVID times coffee with writers thing by Zoom. And for some reason, lighthouses came up during that uh, meeting. And I think I just flippantly said, oh, it would be, you know, cool to have a whole anthology about lighthouses or something like that. And then and then I ended up writing a story about it, uh, which actually our longtime listeners of the podcast proper will will know that lighthouses play a pretty big part in season two of the podcast uh, where we play Dead of Night and it takes place in the Puget Sound and there's a lighthouse and Things go terribly wrong there. Like they do. Like they do. <laughs> so, I mean, putting together an anthology, you know, can't be an easy process. What's the, uh, what is the process of uh, putting one of these things together? So the first part of it is to 
especially as the editor, a lot of people think, oh, you know, reading slush. And yes, that's a big step is reading the stories that people are submitting. But for me, the first part of it is having a very solid idea in your head of what this project is going to look like. So for the stories we tell after midnight, my image in my head that I have when I'm planning to do a volume of that is of old school horror, of quiet horror, because we mostly publish quiet horror, and just a a feeling and kind of like a a vibe. And I hate to sound woo-woo about it, but that's really sort of what it is. I grew up reading a lot of Ray Bradbury, and I grew up reading a lot of short horror fiction that fits in that category. So I'll sit there, I'll be like, okay, this is this is what we're going to do. And then comes the reading of the slush. And that is extremely hard because I've got maybe 20, 22 slots available on the table of contents. And I will always get way more stories that could fit into the project uh, and that I love and that I don't want to say no to, which is why the Coppice and Break and Tangle and Fen anthologies came about is because I'm like, I love these stories and they don't really fit the, the vibe that I'm going for for this particular series, but I want them. And so um, we did the Coppice and Break and now the Tangle and Fen series. Oh, I know that one very well. I believe I just sent you a uh, novel manuscript that didn't quite fit what you were looking for. <laughs> yes, and it's and it's so. And this is probably one of the reasons why I am overscheduled. Like I am perpetually overscheduled with all areas of my life, um, because yeah, it is really hard to say no to something that you really love and that you want to read. Um, and that you want to, to publish, and there's just not the room for it in the production schedule for, you know, uh, for that one, I was reading for Falstaff Dread, uh, Falstaff Dread being the imprint for Falstaff Books, where I'm also the acquiring editor. Um, it's a regional press out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Huh. And yeah, it's like, I really like this, but it's not, it's not quite right for this particular publisher. And I have to say, like, both as an editor and then also as a writer, which I am, making sure that that a project fits both the, the publisher and the category of whatever you're submitting to is so, so important because the wrong publisher for a project can be really frustrating. That makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I taught for years and years. I taught college level composition classes. And I mean, one of the things we talk about is, audience and you've got to find the right audience for the right work and that is why it's so important for writers to read the prior things that a a magazine i I do a lot of magazine submissions so it's important to know what they publish so they they know their audience and their audience is expecting something particular and if they give them something radically different well it might work but it probably will fall flat and it won't get the reaction that either the publisher or the author is hoping for. And I want to pick, on some, pick up on something that you said, which is radically different. I think that there's sometimes confusion on the part of maybe newer writers or people who are contemplating writing or submitting their writing. And that is that, oh, you know, these markets only want the same thing. And that's not quite what we mean when we say we're looking for XYZ. 
what we're looking for is something that fits, again, the vibe, the genre. And yes, we do want to see new and innovative takes. And we want to see writing that's just really good. And it also needs to fit the genre and the vibe. And it's it's sometimes hard to explain. But if you think about it, like if you want to go watch a show, right? Like say you want to go watch a Star Wars show. I'm pulling this out because my spouse and I are currently watching our way through Ahsoka. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so right, so we so you know that Star Wars is is Star Wars. There's certain things that you know people do. There's the Force. There's you know a, a great soundtrack, and there's going to be some lightsaber battles and this and that. But you can only watch the same thing over and over. You've you know you want to explore different stories, and you want to explore different characters, and you want to go to different worlds. And see cool different spaceships. But at the same time, like if the USS Enterprise flies into frame, there's going to be something really jarring about that. <laughs> but that doesn't belong. <laughs> and it's kind of the same way when I'm talking about markets. Is each market, especially if they've been around for a while, they've built up a certain style. They've built up a certain reputation for the sorts of things they like. And the people who are subscribing to that magazine or buying those anthologies or, you know, reading that particular author, that they're reading it because that's what they like. And if you start flying the Starship Enterprise into your Star Wars pudding, nobody's going to want to eat it. I realize I just mixed up like 5,000 metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> well, so did J.J. Abrams. So There you go. <laughs> Well, on that note, then, I mean, you you said quiet horror and you mentioned Ray Bradbury, but do you have any specific examples of what you mean by quiet horror? Yes. Um, so I'll stick with Bradbury. Um, his The October Country, um, that collection of short stories. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite stories of all time is The Velt. And there's not really a lot of like it's not extreme horror. There's not a lot of splatter. There's any violence is mostly happens off stage, but it's a deep and disturbing violence that's happening off the page. And that story lingers because it hints at, for people who haven't read it, the idea is that you have these two children who um, are wanting for nothing, and they have been given kind of like a holographic room for them to play in, and they use it for evil. So the the sorts of things that are happening are happening off screen are extremely violent and are being perpetrated by these two young children. And so there's elements that are very disturbing in there of childhood sociopathy, of the violence that what you know, of, of innocent children. And, and we obviously would think of kids as being young and sweet. And well, for some of us, would. Hmm. <laughs> also, I think if you're a parent <laughs> or a teacher, you also understand that children are capable of a high degree of sociopathy because they're naturally self-centered. And part of our job as parents and teachers is to teach them how to think of other people. And in this story, it's kind of a, a warning of what happens if you don't. So again, that's that's kind of an example. Charles Grant did a series, I think in the 90s, it was the 80s or in the 90s, of called Shadows. It was an anthology series. Oh, yeah. And so quiet horror there. Very, like I said, not a lot of flatter happening on the page, but 
ideas and situations and things that when you start thinking about them can really be very, very chilling. I would even say that Shirley Jackson's The Lottery would would count as quiet horror, because in that story, the horror comes from the fact that this incredibly terrifying situation is treated very mundanely. And again, there's, you know, you don't see the the rocks and the blood from the rocks and they don't, you know, she doesn't go into minute detail about how somebody is stoned to death. And I hope I'm not spoiling that for anybody. Spoilers for a 50 year old story. Right. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really trying to stay with like some more historical examples. So I don't like accidentally give away the ending. I'm also afraid that, um, that 50 years is actually not long enough. Yeah. Well, if, if you haven't read it, pause, go read it, take a little bit of time to process it, and then come back. Indeed. Welcome back after you had a chance to read The Lottery. I hope you're not too traumatized. Which was published in 1948. <laughs> Oof, yeah, that was more than 50 years ago. Oh, my goodness. I'm not even going to do the math on that. <laughs> that's That's quite hard. That's the sort of horror that you're going to find primarily in the Crone Girls publications. Uh, we do have a couple of stories that get a little bit more graphic, in particular in the A Woman Unbecoming anthology that we published last year. But for the most part, most of the stuff we publish does fall under quiet or psychological horror in that category. I guess this leads me to, for the listeners who may be wanting to submit to any publisher, not just, say, Crone Girls Press, but what are your pet peeves when it comes to submissions? What do people do that just, you know, doesn't work? I, I tend to be a very generous reader, and I will open up a story and read the first page. I'm like, let me just check it out. I've started to do that less and less, and many editors that I know that I've spoken to, they won't do it at all if you don't follow the submission guidelines. And if it's very easy to see that you didn't follow the submission guidelines. So um, for most submission or most editors, they're going to ask for you to put it into shun format. Um, So the shun manuscript format, you can Google it online. It's very easy to figure out, uh, very easy to format. If it's not in that format, if you address a cover letter to me as like Mr. Brown, I might think that you didn't spend very much time. <laughs> that was like, I think there was one day that I was going through and I'll, I'll be reading a couple hundred submissions per publication. And I think there was one day where I was just, I was on like my 10th or 11th and I got a submission that addressed me as Mr. Brune. And they said something in their cover letter, like, unlike the rest of horror, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, and that even more than submission guidelines, even more than like, if you have a typo in your first page, listen, I'm a writer, I've done the same thing, sent out a submission and been like, oops. So I get it. I get it. But the, the, the super, like the pet peeve above all pet peeves is when you send me something and in your cover letter, you say something along the lines of, this is better than anything else in the genre, or like unlike all those other um, horror genre writers, I do XXX. I'm like, listen, buddy, I'm a horror lover. I love to read it. I love to write it. I love to publish it. If you're going to come off the, the top rope with 
an insult to the genre that I love and to the writers that I loved, uh, we're not going to be working together because I don't want to publish somebody um, who's looking down at the genre that they're writing and trying to get published in. It just doesn't make very much sense to me. And then to put it in the cover letter, I mean, that's your first impression. My goodness. Yeah, I, I keep my cover letters pretty darn simple. It's like, uh, hey, thanks for reading this, whatever name of the work is. And uh, here's some places I got published before I live in the Pacific Northwest. Thanks again for reading. We'll talk soon, I hope. <laughs> and that's perfect. You know, that's that's absolutely perfect. To me, the more you put into a cover letter, especially for a short story, the more chance you have that you're going to turn the acquiring editor off before they even get to your story. My big problem right now on the writer side of things is that I'm trying to, you know, put a couple of my novels out to agents and and all of that. And it requires me to go through and summarize all of the chapters and the story. And I realize, you know, after I've written something that that's really hard to do. I hate writing synopses with the passion of a thousand fiery suns. <laughs> and, and that doesn't stop me from asking people if they have one when they're submitting to Falstaff Dread. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel really bad about it. But they are a really great way to see if you know, from the editor's point of view, it's a really good way to see if the author is as familiar with their story as they should be. And and I know that sounds kind of weird to say, but after you've been working on something for so long, sometimes you can start to kind of lose touch with it. And sometimes it also helps because a lot of times I'll get like three really great chapters. Like, wow, these are really great chapters. That's usually because most writing workshops that's about as much as you um, can do, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. you're like, I'm going to polish up my first three chapters and then send it in. So you get your first three chapters really, really great. And then you're like, okay, well, where's it going? And the author hasn't spent as much time on the ending as they have at the beginning. So yeah, synopses are evil. I think we can all agree about that. But they are really helpful when you're reading for acquisition, which is why I think people keep asking for them. <laughs> Yeah, that familiarity thing is, uh, it just hit me the other day. I was going through my short story list, uh, getting ready to start sending out things again. I've been kind of lax over the summer. And I came across this story and started reading it. And I'm like, I mean, this is pretty good, but did I write this? Or did somebody give me this for some reason? I don't remember anything about it. I didn't remember the story until about two thirds of the way through. And I'm like, oh, I remember this story. I know what this one is. <laughs> I did write this. I did. <laughs> yep. I've been there. Speaking of writing stories, I would be remiss if I did not ask what your experience has been recently with AI and Gosh. chat gpt so i i think i've been very lucky that i have not been reading slush during the time where um ai and chat gpt kind of exploded onto the scene like oh my gosh so i've had the luxury of kind of sitting back and seeing what's been going on reading the conversations between writers and publishers and people coming from the tech side of things 
My personal intent is not to necessarily publish um, stories that are generated by, by writing prompts, but I can also see how AI and, and computer-generated text can be helpful in things like polishing, you know, like Grammarly and, and polishing a story before you submit it or generating writing prompts for you to write. Mm-hmm. I can see on the one hand that I'm not like, I believe that if you're going to write, you know, write, put, sit down, put the words on the paper and perfect your craft or not perfect it, but keep working at it. But I can also see how it can be useful in certain ways. And so, like I said, I've, I've had the luxury of not having to deal with like, for instance, Neil Clark of Clark's World having to deal with like this huge rush of clearly um, GPT generated stories. I'm not really sure what we would do if we got that rush because we're kind of a smaller shop. <laughs> Might have even caused a few to shut down completely. I, well, I know Clark's World shut their whole submissions down and they're not a small publisher at all, uh, comparatively speaking. Everybody's a small publisher in the in this realm. Right. But, but yeah, I, I'm not. I, I will say that when uh, when we go looking for covers, I'm not interested in working with cover artists who use AI. I'm more. And again, I have the luxury of doing this uh, now, reaching out to artists that I know personally that I've met at conventions. And I know that they are creating art without the assistance of machine of these machine learning models. I want to say that like my my knee jerk reaction was like no AI never but having the luxury of again not being open and being able to view these conversations that people are having I mean at some point you know it might shake out that there's a way to ethically use them until that time though I think we're just going to end up doing things the old fashioned way and Luckily, there's now um, people have started devising con- contractual language around AI that um, we can use the next time we go ahead and start contracting. I've been seeing that on some of the, well, most now of the magazine publishers right there in the submissions section. Well, I, I uh, just been trying to uh, submit a couple of things to uh, Three Lobe Burning Eye, and uh, you have to checkmark. <laughs> that you that none of this was generated or aided by AI in order to proceed with the submission process. But I do know that, I mean, we were both in an online uh, forum about AI in writing. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought I saw your take on it kind of change as the discussions went on, because some people did have some really good points, especially about writers from other countries uh, who aren't native speakers of English and yet English is the is the language of of the world for better or worse and their ability to use AI in order to make translations or to clean up their own stories and that accessibility of course is important oh yeah and and like I said this is kind of why I'm glad I had a chance to step back and look at what people were saying and, and look at the different perspectives that people were bringing. And I, I have sympathy and, and a good deal of sympathy, especially for artists, because this kind of all started over in the art realm, who are like, 
now dealing with people saying, well, if I can just put in a prompt, what do I need you to design my cover for? And I, I also have sympathy for the folks who are saying, hey, this might have been legal, but it wasn't very ethical, you know, training up the language models. And I also have sympathy for people who are like, hey, this is opening up the ability for me to use my skill as a writer, but to have access to greater markets than I ever would have before because I couldn't afford a translator or I couldn't afford a copy editor. I mean, who could afford a copy editor submitting short stories to markets? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if if you're in a writing community, you're lucky. Maybe you can find somebody to swap short stories with, but not everybody is lucky enough to do that. I've lived in several places, and some of this was pre-internet, and some of this is now, where I wasn't able to find somebody that I could have that sort of writing relationship with. Um, I've worked with a writer who is uh, uh, blind, right? So having um, having some sort of AI editor on the back end who can take that work and do the the copy editing, you know, that's, to me, that's opening up accessibility. And so yeah, I'm definitely not saying that I believe it's 100% ethical and moral and legal. I think there's, we won't even know the legal implications until, I don't know, 20 years from now, when Congress figures some stuff out. (laughs) I'm not holding my breath. But for myself, I probably won't be using it. um, Because for me, part of the joy slash frustration of writing is sitting with your paper and your words and figuring out how to get them onto the page in a generally logical and creative way. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to necessarily say that we should try to stick this genie back in the bottle. Uh, Cause I think, uh, or try to stick the cat back in the bag. Cause I think the cat <laughs> shredded the bag on the way out. So that's just not going to happen. <laughs> so we'll have to, we'll have to see. Yeah, I know that in the gaming world, there's a definite use for AI and formatting things to plopping down a bunch of uh, stats for, you know, monsters or whatever, and then having it formatted into a particular style like is used in D&D or Monster of the Week or whatever. Very handy uh, to have. So I know the tools there, and I mean, we, again, have used AI. If we're using um Autocorrect. We're using an AI of sorts. Darn autocorrect. <laughs> as as well as it works. <laughs> but I was also just thinking of something I wouldn't have thought about because you just said earlier when you were talking about novels and the synopsis uh, submissions that well you're looking also to see how familiar the author is with that work, uh, presumably for you know, future aspects of editing and and going into it. I, of course, while writing all these synopsis, (laughs) was like, you know, if I could just feed this into ChatGPT and tell it, hey, summarize each of these chapters, that would be awesome. And then I could go write some more. But I now see that there might be a bit of a conflict there with what the publisher is looking for in those synopsis, not just a synopsis of the chapter or of the book, but also of the author's engagement with that. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I also don't know. I think that the I think that the ethics of AI, because I think originally there was a lot of focus on the legality, 
And I think that there's still a lot of conversations that are informed by legality. And if you're, you know, if you're a large publisher, if you, you know, if, if your bottom line is, if you're like an accountant looking at the bottom line for every single project, legality might be where you're focused because you don't want to have to pay money to lawyers. I also think that the ethics of AI is as equally an important a conversation to say, yes, yeah, something is 100% legal. But, you know, because a lot of people are like, oh, well, you, you know, of course they can use your data. You clicked that box that said, I agree. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, did I read the whole thing? No, I did not. <laughs> Does anybody read the whole thing? Probably not. So, what you know, who who's responsible there? Do we all share a responsibility for the ethics of these machine learning models that we didn't develop and that we didn't really ask for, but now they're here? Is it ethically permissible to use them to do things now that they're that these tools exist? These are all questions that I don't like. I'm not going to sit here and be like, yes, I totally have those answers because I don't. I I have not yet come to a place where I'm very comfortable to say yes, this is okay, or no, that's not. Other than to say that if that's how you're using it, I understand. As a publisher, I do need to know like how you used these tools in your story, because uh, I have an idea of what I would like to publish, um, and the, the boundaries for how machine learning models or chat GPT or whatever we're calling it, how you use those tools on your story. But I'm also not like the arbiter of truth, justice in the American way. So I still am trying to figure that out. So say we all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Well, let's move on to something a little lighter then. <laughs> uh, let's talk about conventions. I know that it was, it's was. it been the summer. You have uh, hit a few, I believe, uh, if I recall correctly, from your various social media feeds. Yes. So I, I love conventions so much. I okay, let me see. So we did Con Carolinas, which is a fantastic convention in Charlotte that happens, I think, usually the first weekend in June. And it has a great a horror presence there. And if you happen to be in the vicinity or even if you fly in, I like I said, I highly recommend it. Um there's uh let me see, I went to RavenCon, which happens in Richmond, Virginia, or Williamsburg, Virginia. And that is uh, RavenCon, as you might guess, that is a, an Edgar Allan Poe themed uh, convention. So definitely felt it. Yes. <laughs> uh, coming up in October, I will be at Multiverse, which is a convention in Atlanta in October. And they have a very strong horror track. So they're all about geekdom and this and that. Uh, but there's a sci-fi track, a fantasy track, a writing track, uh, an academic track, and a uh, and a full horror track, which I am I love that con. I love it so much. Uh, and yeah, and then I just I was at Dragon Con, and that was I say I went there this year though I went completely as just like your your generic attendee. My spouse and I we were like we're going to have a vacation, and I was like I'm not going to work. And so we went and just had a really good time, spent time with friends, came home with plague, but <laughs> feeling better now. As one does, the coming home with the plague part. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a little rough, but um, there are a bunch of really great conventions. 
Uh, one that I'm sorry to have missed uh, was the Saga Convention. Saga Convention is a convention that's sponsored by Falstaff Books. And it is a writing convention, like you would go to like a literary convention or whatever, but it's focused completely on genre. So they have um, a track on craft. So how to write, how to revise, how to edit, how to, you know, world build, whatever you want. And then they have like a business track. So how to format a book, how to submit, you know, to editors, how to market a book. And that one I missed this year. I'm hoping to make it next year because it's just it's just a really good one. The the year that I went, Richard Cadre was one of the guests, and that was just a super fun time. So when you go and you are on the clock, uh, you what? Presumably man a booth. Uh, presumably some panels. So what are those like? Uh, so I don't vent every convention that I go to. Usually, if it's a horror convention, I'll or a, something like RavenCon where there's a strong horror presence, then I'll then we'll set up a Chrome Girls uh, table. Uh, panels are a lot of fun, and I say this if, either as a participant or a moderator because you're basically getting the chance to just geek out about a subject that's usually something that you enjoy for an hour and just talk to people about it. So, for instance, like. One of the panels I was on, oh gosh, was talking about submitting stories or like short stories. And so I just got to talk with fellow writers and editors about kind of like we were talking about here, you know, what's, what are some great markets? What are some things to do? Like, even if you're an advanced writer and you're, you've been submitting for a while, markets change and things change. So, you know, so we got to talk about that for like an hour. There was a, a panel on, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, when I was at Multiverse last year, there was a panel on burnout. I was like, I am an expert on burnout. I'll be happy to talk about that with you for an hour. And yet, and some of the panels can be, uh, there was a panel, um, at, again, at Multiverse, and it was like monster versus monster. So that we broke up into two teams and the moderator would throw out like, Chucky versus Jason. And then, <laughs> Lovely. Right? I love it. That's great. Right? So it was, it's, it's a lot of fun. There's usually um, like if you're an audience member and it's a topic you're interested in, there'll be time for you to ask questions. So like, for instance, I've attended panels specifically because I wanted to listen to the writers on the panels. Like I mentioned Richard Cadre. I love Sandman Slim. It's one of my favorite urban fantasy series. And so, and I also had just finished reading The Grand Dark when he was at Saga. And so I would just attend a panel, even if I wasn't super interested in the topic, because I wanted to hear his take on it. So being on the panels is super fun. Moderating the panels is a lot of fun. You basically, it, it comes down to like, you get to ask authors, you know, some of whom could be your favorite authors, the questions about, you know, the topic. But I also just enjoy attending them and listening to the conversation and hearing people's perspectives because it's he, he can't always like writers i think we spend a lot of time by ourselves you know in a room probably caffeinated <laughs> you know there's not a lot of social interaction going on but then when you go to a convention to me that's kind of like that's like our hybrid work day when we go in and we get a chance to hang around the water cooler and talk to other our colleagues and see what's going on 
And there's always a good deal of networking to be had at conventions. And I wouldn't necessarily say, yes, go to conventions specifically to network, but it's definitely someplace where you can do that. And where uh, I've had a bunch of anthology that I'm in, uh, that the Kickstarter just opened up, that came from networking at conventions and meeting Sarah Medeiros, who is the editor. Um, I met her at RavenCon, and then we connected online, and then met up again at um, Scares That Care AuthorCon earlier this year. And so when she was putting the project together, I was one of the folks that she contacted. So yeah, conventions can be really good for the networking aspect as well. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people probably forget that what networking is or should be is meeting people in your field, in your area of interest, and being friendly with them because you have a shared interest. <laughs> and that that friendship, that acquaintance might or might not turn into something else, but that engagement itself is important, is social, is being, you know, human. Yes. And like kind of harkening back to the earlier part of the conversation, that human connection is one of the things that I enjoy about publishing. And I'm using that as kind of like a, a word that encompasses editing and writing and reading and all of those other things. So John Hartness of False Stuff Books, he will often say, I don't buy uh, projects, I buy authors. He does buy projects. <laughs> but <laughs> his point is that he wants to know the people that he's working with, because especially publishing book length projects, that's going to be a multi year sometimes, especially if it's a series, it's going to be a multi year relationship. And sometimes you, sometimes like friendship, sometimes you meet people and you click, and then later on you're like, ah, you know, maybe I had a wrong first impression. So meeting people at cons, doing that networking, which is like you said, it's it's having a relationship. It's like meeting somebody, talking to them, finding out if you have, you know, shared interests or because like we were talking about earlier, is it the right publisher? You'll know if it's, you'll be more confident, I should say, that it's the right publisher. If you have a chance to go to a convention and see their table, what, what titles are they publishing? Uh, when they're at their table, are they selling everything at their table? Or is there like maybe one or two authors that they're really enthusiastic about and the rest of the table is filler? When they're on a panel, do they engage in the conversation? Or is everything me, me, me? There's just like kind of some clues that you can use to see, okay, is this a, a person? Is this a company? Is this a publisher that, that might be interested in me? But also, am I interested in working with them? Like I said, I've had some experience with some really great ones. And then I've had some experience with, you know, on both the publishing and the writing side, with folks, I'm like, hey, we had a thing, we had a story, and that's where we're going to end the relationship. <laughs> well, and you said that you uh, have some stories coming out. Uh, tell us some more about those. Sure. So um, the Sierra Medeiros, uh, who founded Tundra Swan Press, she has just launched the Kickstarter for an anthology called The Haunted Zone. And this is an anthology of short horror stories by women veterans. And so I've got a short story in there called Arachne's Loom, and I had a lot of fun writing it. It combines my love for fiber arts with my also love of 
the history of fiber arts and textiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, some spooky stuff and also some spiders, because I don't think I'm giving anything away when I say Arachne's loom has spiders. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, any other projects coming up that uh, we should know about other than uh, also the anthology that you're about to put out? Yep. Um, Tanglin Fun is coming out. Uh, we do have a couple of more coming up. Uh, once we put out this full-length anthology, we've I've got about four more Midnight Bites anthologies that I've contracted that I need to finish editing and formatting and get those scheduled. So we have a pretty active production schedule coming up. And um, we'll be, we do a lot of the announcements for that in our Facebook group, um, which is just Chrome Girls Press. We used to be on what used to be Twitter, but we're not there anymore. So Facebook really is the best place to come and, and join us. Nice. Well, that's going to cover my slightly later question of how do we, how do we find you? Uh, and there will be links down in the show notes as well. But uh, yeah, I guess the fire is dying down and uh, it's too far to go to the woodpile to throw on more logs. So I've just got a couple more questions for you for this night rolls on into the midnight hour. Uh, What's your favorite horror story of all time? Oh my gosh, (laughs) that's terrible. I know. It's the same thing people ask me. And, you know, it's like, I can't answer that question. Uh, Screw you. I'm not going to answer that. But I've asked it of you. And now. So. Go ahead. Say, say lamps like masks. Go ahead. That's a wonderful story. And I everybody should read it in stories you tell for Midnight Three. Um, you know, I, I often tell people that the story that has resonated with me for the longest amount of time, uh, which I guess if we're going to define favorite, that's one definition, uh, is a story called uh, Boobs by Susie McKee. And I think I read it in, in, a, in the original magazine that it was in. And it was a werewolf story, which mm. I love werewolves. And it was, it was a story where a young girl is being harassed. And as she goes through puberty, she becomes a werewolf. There's there's a metaphor there. It's a very it's very gasp. <laughs> it's like take your hammer, bang, bang, bang. Okay, yes. And I just remember it was scary and it was kind of uh disturbing, but it was also really cool. <laughs> like it was like, here's somebody who, you know, a young girl who and this was like the eighties, I think. So we're still very much in the, well, you know you must have done something to attract that attention. Oh, yeah. Right? And the the protagonist didn't stand for it. She took care of business, and there was not really a lot of regret on her part. And I just thought that was incredibly liberating. And horror can be incredibly liberating. Um, You can make some wrong choices in horror and get away with it. Um, (laughs) Sort of. (laughs) In in a more violent and direct way than your typical anti-hero. Mm. Like I said, I, I later went on and I would like, sometimes people be like, what's your favorite? Oh, you know, Ray Bradbury or uh, Stephen King short stories. Love his short stories. You know, Shirley Jackson, of course, love her, love her stuff. But if I think of the one story that's resonated with me for the very longest time, uh, and then I continue to think about that would be the story. 
uh, before we go, uh, I I understand perhaps that you uh, you may or may not I don't know um, listen to some podcasts here and there. Do you have any recommendations for us for horror podcasts of any sort? Yes, and I'm going to double check to make sure that I'm giving you the right name of it because I constantly I listen to a lot and then I mix them up. So one of the ones that I enjoy is called Afflicted, which is a horror thriller. It's an audio drama, which I just really, really enjoy. And the producer behind that, Tanya Ransom, also runs a podcast called Nightlight, uh, which is a horror fiction podcast. And so uh, like one episode will be will be an audio version of a short story. And then the next uh, episode will be an uh, interview with the author. So you kind of get a little bit of the best of both worlds there. Nice. And then uh, there's another fun horror podcast. This is um, more of like a discussion format called the I Scream Queens. They were handing out like little promotional postcards at MidSouthCon uh, maybe two years ago. And I was like, oh, that looks interesting. And so it's the, um, these women who get together and they talk about horror movies, um, a little bit of horror fashion, horror stories and things like that. So yeah, those are the ones that are on my rotation pretty frequently. All right. Well, we look for you at Crone Girls Press on Facebook, any other social media or anywhere that we should turn our eyes to find you or your projects. Absolutely. So we've got, um, so yeah, Facebook is really the place where we're most active. Um, we also have an Instagram, which is at Crone Girls Press. And our website is cronegirlspress.com. That's where you can find links to our books and you can read some interviews with some of our authors. And when we next open up our submissions, which I'm not really sure when that's going to be, but if our submissions are open, that's where you'll find uh, all of the guidelines and everything else. Well, thank you very much, Rachel, for joining us today by the fire. And as you go outside into the cold and the dark, be careful of the things you hear howling. And thank you, Sojourners, for joining us for this fireside chat. We will see you in the regular feed. Good night. Mm-hmm.